So Acts chapter 3, we left off with uh, Peter having another chance to preach after and as a result of the healing of this man who had sat by the the beautiful gate uh, at the temple for who knows how many years. He'd been crippled from birth. He's now, we'll find out in chapter 4, verse 22, he's over 40 years old. So he's never walked. He's always been dependent. Uh, That was his life. And and through Peter, you know, as the human instrument, through Peter and John, God has touched him, and he, the, the lame man has now been made whole. And that is a story of so many of us, not necessarily physically lame, but emotionally lame, or mentally lame, or, or, or something like that, just even just the way we acted, the things we thought sinfully lame. And God stepped into our lives, and he changed our lives forever, and we don't have to go back to, to being impoverished or being beggars like that that guy was he's not going to return to that gate to beg anymore he's a new person and so that's where we left off and that got people's attention peter had preached a sermon and we'll see in chapter four what the response to that was verse one says now as they spoke to the people the priests the captain of the temple and the sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter's first sermon, 3,000 get saved. The church grows from 120 disciples meeting in the upper room. Now there's 3,120 And now another couple thousand get saved. I mean, you want to talk about rapid church growth. The Lord is adding to the church daily those that are not just seeing the miracle. Because we're going to see here, there's many that saw the miracle. They saw the man. He'd been there day after day. He was lame. And now he is jumping and leaping and doing, you know, Pilates in the the temple area. He's fully engaged now. And, uh, And people are seeing this. And it's really raising some eyebrows and getting attention. But not everybody who sees that becomes an instant believer in Jesus. Some of them still reject and some still, uh, still do not or still refuse to believe. But verse 4 tells us many of those, not just who saw the miracle, but who heard the word, believed. And that's what we continue to do. Miracles are wonderful. Miracles are great to see. And they're exciting to see. But they do not necessitate Uh, and drive people to faith it's that word of the word of god is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and that's why uh, we tend to and and continue to place our emphasis here on the steady and systematic teaching of the word of god so many heard it and they believed but there's this other group of people the priests the captain of the temple guard that's like the police chief of the temple and the sadducees that came upon them so this other group of people, the Sadducees, we, we have learned about them in the Gospels. This is one of the political, religious political parties in Jerusalem. They were there. Uh, the Pharisees was the other one. The Pharisees were the legalists, the ones that were really giving Jesus the greatest opposition during his earthly ministry. The Sadducees we heard a little bit about, but not a whole lot. The Pharisees were the ones that got after Jesus for not keeping the Sabbath the way that they thought it should be kept and doing these uh, breaking their law. But now we see 
after the resurrection is the Sadducees. They were the materialists. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament because in them you could find, they, they claimed you could find no evidence of resurrection. See, they did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of those things, much like many people in our culture today. Uh, these were the politically elite. They were the wealthy. They were the powerful. Many of the, the priests and the high priests came from the Sadducean party. And look what they got greatly disturbed at. These, these guys were agitated, uptight, disturbed by two things. Not just one thing. Look, there are two things there. Number one, that they taught the people. That jumped out at me as I was just sitting there reading this passage. They were disturbed that they taught the people. Because knowledge is power. Knowledge is, you've heard that saying before, knowledge is power. And to give people knowledge, to help them understand, is to set them free. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you abide in my word, listen, if you abide, not just casually read on occasion, not just pick it up once in a while, if you abide, remain, continue in, if you abide in my word, then you'll be my disciples. And what will you know? And then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And I love that passage, and I love that verse, and I love that idea. Do you know, uh, a little while ago, I was watching a talk by a woman who went undercover in North Korea. She was South Korean, and if you know anything about uh, the world uh, uh, political structure, you know North Korea is, is a very, very scary uh, place, politically speaking. It's a, uh, one, this, this girl said it's a gulag uh, masquerading as a nation. Everything there is about the, the, those that are in power, those that are control of the emperor, and, and they are um, completely cut off from the greater knowledge around the world. Everything is controlled, everything is monitored, and there's no freedom. So she went undercover into North Korea as a teacher, and she was given a job to teach in their university of science and technology. And every, the classrooms have, have cameras in them, and the classrooms are bugged. Everything is monitored. You know what these kids don't know? They, now, this is the top kids in their top university in Pyongyang for science and technology, and they have no idea that the Internet exists. And she couldn't tell them. They don't know. The only people that know the Internet exists are those that are in political power who monitor it for seeing what's being said about North Korea. And so they're, they're oppressed because their knowledge is withheld from them. I don't know about you, mom and dad. I, to me, it's kind of scary when, when people decide what you should know and what you shouldn't know. Even as a pastor, that's why we go through the whole Bible. Because I don't want to be responsible for deciding what it is in the Bible that you should know and you shouldn't know. I don't want to say, well, Leviticus, you don't really need that. Don't worry about that. Hey, we're going to go through it. Anytime someone tries to withhold knowledge from me or or, or the world or the school system or whatever, I think, you know, that's a dangerous thing. I'm not, because I know the word of God, I'm not afraid of, of things that oppose the view that I hold. My kids, raising them to know the Lord, they get exposed to some evolutionary teaching here or there, school situations or whatever, someone they meet, uh, they, they know the word. They can evaluate those things. They have the truth. When you know the truth, it's easy to see a lie. And so, John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said it, Romans chapter 1. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, 
that the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Men who suppress the truth, to hold down the truth. Do you, do you realize that the whole battle is for your mind and what you know? Because if we can control your beliefs, then we can control your behavior. And that's why so many are opposed to the teaching of the Word of God. Because it sets people free. You can't control people who now aren't dependent on the government or aren't dependent on this. or aren't dependent. I know the Lord. And so the first thing they were mad about was that they were teaching the people. They're giving them information. And if they have this information, then we are going to lose some power. The second thing, they were not just what they were doing, but what they were teaching. They preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were teaching stuff opposite to what the beliefs were that were commonly held by the Sadducees. And instead of considering, instead of coming to this information, wanting to learn and being challenged by that, their idea was, hey, we've got to suppress this. We've got to cut this off. We've got to suppress this knowledge. You know, it doesn't bother me that, that in the schools, well, it, it does bother me that in the schools they've said, you know, none of this teaching about creationism. That does bother me. But you know what, mom and dad, you can teach them at home. Don't be dependent on the school to teach your kids truth. They're not going to learn it. As matter of fact, Psalm 119, David says, because we have the word of God, we know more, that he knows more than all of his teachers. I love that. Knowing the word of God, because fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. So because we have the word of God, because you have a framework to understand the world you live in, you actually have a greater basis for, for knowledge than, than someone who doesn't. No matter, they could have a PhD and be absolutely ignorant about the most important things in the world. So resurrection from the dead, they preached in Jesus. He rose from the dead. They said, we don't believe in that. They said, well, it's true. You can believe it or not, but it's true. And they preached resurrection, and verse 3 says, so they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. It was too late for a trial, so they put them in custody. But it didn't stop people from believing. Verse 5 says, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? As if they had done some criminal thing. They, they were effective to see a man who'd been crippled since birth healed. And now they're in prison for it. Now they're being held for it and being questioned for it. And don't, don't miss the fact, this is an extremely intimidating scene. And remember who we're dealing with here. This is Peter, the, the apostle, as they say, with a foot-shaped mouth. And this is Peter, who denied the Lord three times. And this is Peter, who, when questioned by an adolescent servant girl in the, in the house, after Jesus was arrested, is the one that cowered, and denied the Lord. This is that same Peter, now post-resurrection, now filled with the Spirit. So this is a very intimidating scene. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, maybe at work, or maybe um, in a place where you were being questioned by a group of powerful people. Man, that can be intimidating. And so, it's, you know, if ever there was a time when Peter would sort of, you know, 
zip it and be intimidated. It would be now. But verse 8 tells us a different story than Peter. And this is the key, filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Don't you appreciate the confidence? I think we appreciate that confidence because here's this intimidating group of powerful people questioning them about what has happened. Hey, they say, hey, by what power or by what name have you done this? Not because they were curious. Not because they wanted to know so they could believe. They were looking for an excuse. If, if they had said anything other than Jehovah God, it would have been grounds for arrest and possible, uh, possible death for them. Remember, Jesus was questioned about how, where his power was to do miracles. They had accredited Beelzebub, or the Lord of the flies, meaning the Lord of the, the manure pile. That's where flies gather. Satan. He had, they had accredited uh, Jesus for operating under the power of Satan. And he, he gives the speech about you know, a house divided against itself can't stand. Satan doesn't cast out Satan or his house is divided. So they looked at Jesus and the things he was doing. They said, well, Satan must be empowering him. Where does this power come from? And Peter does not, uh, I just, I love the courage. Isn't that what Jesus promised would be the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit? And you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will have boldness. Boldness. And it is, it is what we need. It is what we need as a church. Why are we always so embarrassed to talk about what we believe? Why are we so challenged by that? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for people to be saved. Why would we be ashamed? You know, I've, I've got a cure for cancer, but I'm kind of ashamed of it. What? Are you kidding me? So Peter, speaking with this tremendous confidence to this intimidating group of guys, says, you know, um, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he says to them, whom you crucified. He, he is, uh, again, no soft-peddling preacher in this. He is not going, well, I don't really want to cause a disturbance. I don't want to really make waves here. So let's just give it in general. I don't want to point the finger at anybody. We are so politically correct in our culture that we are afraid to call anything wrong. Because, well, someone's going to be upset or someone's going to think that we're judgmental. Peter says, he points his big, fat fisherman finger right at them. And he says, you crucify. It's the same group that was standing in judgment, the Sanhedrin, the, rule, the ruling party, that said, crucify. We, we, we hand him over to be crucified. Same group. And Peter's now confronting them. And he says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. The resurrection, if that never happened, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. If there was no resurrection, Peter would have gone back to fishing, and who knows what Matthew would have done. He burned his bridges with tax collecting. He'd have had to found, found something else to do. The, the, the zealots would have gone back to, to fighting against Rome, and it would have all, things, we wouldn't be here if there's no resurrection. If there's no 
filling with the Spirit. We wouldn't be sitting here 2,000 plus years later. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and it's by his name, by his power, that this man stands before you whole. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, and he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He goes right back to Psalm 118, 22. We find that verse quoted in a number of different places. Peter quotes it in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2. Luke 20, Jesus quotes it of himself. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about that in terms of the the family of the church being built up uh, on the foundation of the apostles and, and the prophets and Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So this goes back to a story Uh, When the temple, Solomon's temple was being built, maybe you know this, but they didn't do all the the cutting of the stones on the construction site. There was no sound of the chisel or hammer heard on the construction site. Those guys, those of you that work in here in construction industry, you know a construction site is usually a very loud place. Well, what they did is they had all the plans and the sizes for the stones, and they would give those to the stone masons, the stone cutters at the quarry. And according to the plan, the stone cutters would cut out all the stones, then they would be brought to the construction site where the temple was being built, and they would be laid in place by the masons. And they were cut to such perfection that, that you couldn't put even a, a, like a credit card size or a piece of paper between them. They, sit, they fit so tightly together. So at the beginning of the project, stones would be cut and brought to the site, and they'd, they'd be put in place one on top of another, and a stone was sent up, that the builders looked at it, and it, was, it didn't seem to fit anywhere. They didn't know what to do with it. it didn't, they looked at the plan. They looked at the building. We don't know where this stone fits. It must have been miscut. So they put it away. They, they rejected it, and it sat untouched for a very long time. Weeds grew up around it. People would trip over it. It was just sitting there. You know how you have that thing in your house that you're always tripping over. It's just sitting there on the floor, and it just sat there. And then at the end of the, the building project, it came time to place the capstone, and uh, they sent back to the quarry, said, where's the, where's the capstone? And they said, well, we sent that up months ago. So they began to look around, and they remembered that stone that had been rejected, and when they brought it over, it fit perfectly in place. See, right according to the plan, it had been rejected when it was brought up the first time. But then after the building was completed, it was brought back, and fit perfectly into place. And the idea is that it, was, it was, had been rejected, but then it was elevated to this capstone. Now there's another possible option for this. Some say it's actually not the capstone, but the cornerstone, which is the stone that is perfectly cut by which the, the square and the plumb of the rest of the building is set. Either one is appropriate. Either one is fine. But that's what Peter says. says hey, Jesus is that cornerstone or that capstone that was rejected by you builders and, and, and has become the chief. And, and he finishes this thought. Verse 12 is fantastic. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a repeated thought in the Bible. And, and I want to challenge us. One of the things I'm trying to, to help you understand is who you are because of the culture you live in. So much of what we think and so many challenges for us in ministry is 
because we have a certain cultural way of thinking, well, now we have to kind of mold and change the gospel to fit into our cultural mindset. You know, again, I shared this a couple weeks ago when we talked about koinonia. Just we are a highly individualistic culture, which means we're just into privacy. And privacy, by the way, is a word that doesn't exist in many languages of the East. And when it does exist, it's, it's a, it has a negative connotation. Did you know that? But in our culture, it's... it's yeah. So um, culturally, there are some differences in the way we think because of we're American that isn't shared around the world. And so as, you, as we read this thing, you guys have had the conversations. I was in a coffee shop Friday morning, Friday morning, and I've just got... It's hard for me to listen is it like, are you like, you hear someone talking, 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 and they're just spewing out nonsense. And I just, I bite my tongue, and I bite my tongue, but I just can't sit and listen. I have to ask a question. And it usually gets me in trouble, but that's okay. So someone was, uh, had, had, was talking about how a person had prayed for them in Jesus' name, and they'd been healed, but they were uh, Muslim. And, and I said, well, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there literally with the book of Acts is open in my lap and I'm studying and I'm reading and they're talking about being healed in Jesus' name. And I'm thinking about this, this lame guy who's leaping and praising God. And I'm going, you know, we've got a different God. And I'm thinking, so you're, pr- you're prayed for in Jesus' name, but you're, you're Muslim. I said, is, that, is there a problem? Do you see a problem with that? And, of course, the, the walls just began to go up right away. And you could tell, you know, I could tell that there's some deep hurt. Usually when a person has that kind of negative response, there's been some kind of deep hurt. But they began to say, well, you know, I, I believe in all of the prophets. Well, I'm like, well, if Jesus is one of the prophets you believe in, he's, either, he's a false prophet then because he said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. So as I began to question, this person began to grow a little more angry and actually walked out. I was like, ah, I hate when that happens. I try to be friendly. I try to be nice. I really do. I mean, I was very nice. I was not mean-spirited or anything like that, but it's just hard to listen to people spew out common, accepted junk about, well, I believe that there's so, everybody has a, has a way to God and all these things you know, lead to God when they're all contradicting each other. When they, they're, all, they're, they're not, so it's, it's ignorance and, and I understand that. But recognize it's also cultural. It's also cultural. So I, I print this out and I keep this with me because it's a group of people that have done a lot of studies on culture uh, and have studied uh, extensively American culture. It's called the Washington International Center. And they have been introducing thousands of international visitors to life in the U.S. for more than a third of a century. This has caused us to try to look at Americans through the eyes of our visitors. So they list 13 values in this that are true of 95% of all Americans. Even though all Americans would rather be classified as individualistic, saying that we won't fall into any one group, the truth is we're much less individualistic than we think we are. And two of the things that are important to us, mentioned one a while ago, are uh, one is individualism. 
and privacy. I mentioned that already. The idea of individualism is that uh, what's right for me may not be right for you, and, and I'm different than you, so what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you because I have my own way, and I have my own individual achievement, and, and my thing is my... And so that's why we have this thing culturally, the PC, the politically correct is, well, you know, if Jesus is good for you, then that's good for you, but, you know, but something different working for me, then okay, well, if it works for you, and that's cultural. That's cultural. We believe that we are all unique, and therefore the rules, there's no universal set of rules that apply to us. So when we read culturally that there is no salvation in in no other name except Jesus, that is confrontational to us because it's against our culture. But what I'm telling you is you have to reject your culture for the Word of God. And when he says that there is no other name by which men can be saved, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And by the way, the word saved is the same word used of the lame man that was made whole. It's being made whole. That's what being saved. It's being made whole spiritually. And, and that was my, I mean, that was what I needed. That's what you needed. So just like that lame guy was crippled, he was dependent. He was unable to... to advance he was paralyzed that's what i was the story of my life i needed to be saved from so i needed to be saved from lies i need to be saved from my sins on and on the list goes but it's that same word and when we hear that there is one way that that that's why we have such a negative response the second thing is our value of self-help uh self-help concept in the united states a person can take credit only for what he or she has accomplished by him or herself Americans get no credit whatsoever for having been born into a rich family. In the U.S., that would be considered an accident of birth. Americans pride themselves in having been born poor and through their own sacrifice and hard work, having climbed the difficult ladder of success to whatever level they achieved all by themselves. The American social system has, of course, made it possible for Americans to move relatively easily up the social ladder. Take a look at the English language dictionary, the composite words that have the word self as a prefix. In the average desk dictionary, there will be more than 100 such words, words like self-confidence, self-conscious, self-contented, self-control, self-criticism, self-deception, self-defeating, self-denial, self-discipline, self-esteem, self-expression, self-importance, self-improvement, self-interest, self-reliance, self-respect, self-restraint, self-sacrifice, and the list goes on. The equivalent of these words cannot be found in most other languages. This list is perhaps the best indication of how seriously Americans take doing things for oneself. The self-made man or woman is still very much the ideal in 20th century America. So 20th century America reads this verse and realizes that one thing I cannot do for myself is to save myself. And that flies in the face of our deeply ingrained, culturally accurate uh, American self-help concept. And so I hope you're, maybe you're here and you're one of those well, I'll come to church after I get my act together. You see where that starts? It's, it's cultural. I'll come, to ch- I'll come after. I've got to get my act together first, and then I'll come. No, the Bible says you can't get your act together. You're, what if the lame man said, well, you know, maybe I just need to learn to walk. You're lame. You're crippled from birth. You're not going to learn to walk. You have to be healed. And that's what Peter is saying to them. Can you imagine, and even to them, how confrontational it would have been to them for, Jesus, for uh, Peter to say to them, there is no other name 
that, that can make people whole, not the name of the high priest, not the name of, of this leader or that leader. It's only Jesus. Do you have those conversations with people? Do you, do you get confronted with that understanding? I, I don't, I mean, aren't you thankful that there is a way? I mean, maybe right now, you know, maybe there, there's someone sitting here and goes, well, you know, isn't that narrow-minded? Yes, it is. It's extremely narrow-minded. But on the way in this morning, I was listening to 105.3. Jacob and I were on our way in, and David Jeremiah was on. You like David Jeremiah? Great, great preacher. And he happened to be talking about the similar topic. He actually quoted in his sermon, Acts 4. I was like, thank you, Lord. Okay, half my sermon written right there. Thank you, David Jeremiah. But he was talking about, we don't consider it narrow-minded, that there's only one way to be born. I mean, if you are born, and you've been born, because you're sitting here, and I'm looking at you, you have a mother and a father. You have an egg and a sperm that connected to make who you are. And guess what? There's no other way. That's the only way you can be born. But people, oh, scientists, they're so narrow-minded. Now, maybe some of you were hatched, but it was still the same way. Still the same way. It's Jesus that said, there's a wide gate, and a lot of people go through, through it, and it leads to destruction. But there is a narrow way for narrow-minded people who believe that there is just one way, but are thankful that there is a way that men can be saved. Because there's no other on whose hands or on whose head we could lay our hands, transferring our sins by faith, who was then sacrificed as the sin offering and accepted to God, demonstrated by resurrection. There's no other who has died in my place. And so there's no other life that could save me. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, man, that's what they saw. They didn't say, did you hear that was three points and a, you know, and a, and a concluding song? Is it, did you see the boldness of those? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And, and I still marveled that. I love that verse. That's like, if you've been around Calvary Chapel a little while, that's like a life verse of Calvary Chapel. I mean, the Calvary Chapel pastors are the biggest bunch of crazy lunatics I've ever met in my life. I said, I can fit in with this group. I mean, none of them, they don't have seminary training. They haven't been to the biggest school. I mean, that's Peter and John. That's part of the reason they were so uh, angry that they were teaching people. These guys weren't certified rabbis that graduated with their, you know, certified rabbinical degrees from the certified rabbinical schools. They followed Jesus. They were fringe lunatics. They were uneducated. They were fishermen and tax collectors and nobodies in terms of the, the educational system of the day. They were nobodies. And, and so I look at the guys that I know. I mean, the, the different Calvary chapels. At one time, about a number of years ago, of the top 25 largest churches in the country, nine of them were Calvary chapels. And, and most of the guys had no seminary degrees. And so now again, I want, you know, sometimes we can, we can go to the other extreme and, 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 you know, we can knock seminary. And we could call, you know, have you been to cemetery? I mean seminary. And we can use jokes like that. But so, seminary in of itself is not bad. It's not bad. Look at what this says here. When they saw the boldness of Peter John and perceived that they were untrained and uneducated men, they marveled. 
and they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, that's the key. Whether you have a PhD or an MDiv or whatever letters are behind your name, the important thing is that you've been with Jesus. And Peter and John still were with Jesus. He was now filling their lives. The Spirit of God had come to dwell in them. That was the key. Not just that they had been with Jesus prior, but that they were walking with him, filled by his Spirit even now. Now, churches... These guys would have never been qualified to fill most of the pulpits around our country. Why? Because when, pa- when pastoral search committees are formed, when pastors are searched for, a lot of times the church committee, the search committee gets together and say, well, what do we want in a pastor? Well, number one, he's got to have an MDiv. Got to have a PhD. Got to have some letters after his name. Got to have an education by this seminary or that seminary. Has to have been to our school. And again, nothing in and of itself is wrong with that. But shouldn't the first question be, is this guy filled with the Spirit? Does he spend time with the Lord? Has he, is, does he have a life that looks like Jesus Christ? Is there boldness? This, gives me, this should give you hope too, because the thing you hear people tell you is, yeah, you know, God, why would God use you? I mean, you don't have a degree. You don't have a this. You don't have a that. You've not been to school. I, w- I went to the school of shoeing horses in people's backyard and dealing with the, the business end of that horse. You know, that's where I went. I learned humility there. That's where I learned to, to be low man of the totem pole and, and listening to the Word of God and studying and, and just picking up the Bible and spending time with the Lord and reading and going, wow, that's awesome. And just applying these things to my life, spending time with the Lord. Do you spend time with the Lord? See, because people are going to say to you, you're, you're, who do you think you are being used, to be used by God? God will never use you. And so the, this is a great verse. This is fantastic. They marveled. And people still, I, I love it when, you know, when people come here and they see what God is doing here and say, well, how did you do it? What do you, you know, where'd you go to school? I said, man, I I didn't go. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. We're growing. That's the, I don't have to try to, conf, to be above you all. I don't have to somehow try to show, well, I have this education, therefore. No, no. we're learning together, folks, aren't we? We're getting into the Word of God, and we're going, wow, did you guys see that? That's cool. You know, we should probably do that. I mean, it's not just about, it's not just that we teach the Bible. It's that we actually believe it. We actually believe that it's true. So they saw that they were uneducated, untrained men. They didn't have the right certificates and the right letters, but they'd been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't that great? I mean, that is awesome. They could argue with his theology, and people do that. They argue with theology. You know, I meet an atheistic person or someone who doesn't believe in God. I'm going to argue about this and argue about that. And, and we can point to 2,000 years of testimonies of people that have been healed by Jesus Christ. And how do you argue with that? Our summer choir program is coming up in August, and and the the title this year is, I Love to Tell the Story, and they've been videotaping testimonies from people right here in the fellowship and listening to the stories of healing, listening to the stories of people being made whole, listening to the stories of families being put back together and of of lives being changed. How do you argue with that? It's a great, great thing that you have your testimony, especially with people that knew you beforehand. 
before they, and they knew this lame guy. They knew him before he was healed. And now they see him now and go, wow, there's something different about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. And, you know, he's leaping up and kicking his heels together. You know, let me give you a hint, you know. I was, I'm walking now. Something's different. Yeah. Who did, how did that happen? Have you had someone ask you that in your life? Someone you knew in, in college? Someone you knew in your party days? Someone you knew in the old life? Say, man, what, what happened to you? Jesus happened to me. And he can happen to you too. That's, that, that is the great promise. The people that knew you, and I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story and to hear you tell your stories. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no farther among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they will speak to no man in this name. A, let's intimidate them, let's use force to challenge them. And what does this come back to, gang? This comes back to the truth. That's what's at stake here. Yes, this is the first official persecution of the church. Jesus promised them it would happen. Hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It's not you that they hate. It's Jesus that they hate. Because we can talk about God in a general sense. And that's what we, this person I talked to in the coffee shop said, well, I believe in God. But then when you give God kind of skin and flesh and you define him, now he's set apart. Jesus defines God. And so when you say Jesus, you better get ready for a fight. You can say God all day long, can't you? Just don't define that. Because you have your God and I have my God and we have our concept of God, but don't. But the minute you say Jesus, the gloves go on, the walls go up. Why? Not because they hate you. Not because they're mad at you. It's, it's Jesus that is the stumbling block. It's Jesus that is the issue. And so I, you know, with these guys, Peter, John, they could have avoided this whole thing. Hey, we're sorry. We didn't mean to do it. We'll just, we'll, we'll just cower in a corner and keep the truth to ourselves. Our little group will enjoy our truth. You know, the challenge for me in life is that God has filled me with his spirit. And I see people hurting. And I see people in need. And I see people responding to misinformation in their lives. And I just can't help but want to see them set free. I just cannot help but want to tell them the truth. And so many reject it. But that doesn't make me stop trying because some accept it. And then I can point around the room. I can look around the room right here. And God has changed your lives. You're not the person you used to be. Praise the Lord. Hey, we're going to just threaten them and so that they don't preach this uh, because we, we, we got we to gotta stop that rather than believing it, we're going to suppress it. So they called them, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, <laughs> They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. 
Why are we so scared of people? Why are we so intimidated by what people will think about? See, again, it goes back to protecting our self-image. I want people to like me, and I do. You know, no one likes to be hated. No, no one likes to be uh, different, even though we all want to be different. We want to be different just like everybody else. But notice and, and recognize and just accept that when you begin to stand for Jesus, that will occasionally involve you opening your, opening your mouth. Paul said it to the Corinthians, I believed, therefore I did what, folks? I spoke. I believed, therefore I spoke. Not in a mean-spirited way, not in a, a, con- a condemning way, not in an agitated way, just in a very truthful, sharing the truth in love. That's what we're called to do. And it's because we love people. Look, those of you that have been hounded by your spouse, those of you that have been hounded by your children, those of you that have been hounded by your brothers or sisters, it's not because we, we, we don't like you or we think you're evil or wicked or whatever. It's because we love you and we want to see you saved. That's really the heart behind it. Sometimes it doesn't come out right and sometimes we seem like we're nagging and sometimes we seem like we just won't let up, but it's because we've discovered truth and it has set us free. And all we can imagine, the thing we dream about, is to see you set free too. And so when, when people tell, when they told them, hey, you're not allowed to say this. You're not allowed to, to teach these things. Peter says, hey, who, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? Someday we may be there in this country. We're getting ever so much closer, aren't we? You come visit me when I start a new prison ministry from the inside. But it's all about suppressing truth and controlling people's lives. And when we open up the word together and we say, hey, here's the word of God, you read it for yourself, it begins to set people free. Amen? Amen. So as uh, I invite Jacob and the praise team to come back up, we're going to close with the final song. And and I want to offer this invitation. I've been praying like crazy because I am so ready to see the Lord do a new work in our midst, one that we see with our own eyes. And so I will continue to invite, if you were brought here by a friend, you're here visiting, uh, you're not here by coincidence, uh, you're not hearing these things, that there's no other name by which you can be saved. Not your own self-help, not your own hard work. You need a sacrifice. And Jesus has been that sacrifice for you. So if you would like to be saved, if you know you need to be saved, then I, I ask that you boldly, just walk down here in the front and say, hey, I, I want to be saved. I've been trying my, by my own strength, by my own work. I've been, my life's a mess. My family's a mess. My finances are a mess. Everything's a mess. I've blown it, and I know that I need help. I can't do it myself. I want to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who, when you surrender, will do it for you. So I'm going to ask you to come down here, and I'll be sitting right here while we close. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.